0: Another, day, another dollar, makes you wonder where you your money went. You can scream, and you can holler. Hi the folks, this is Jack Spearco with another additional Survival Podcast. This is always one man to do in the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 407. It is Friday, March 26, 2010, and we are going to have a great show today. I decided um, I'm not always going to stick to a formula. I'm not always going to do a listener call show or a listener feedback show on Fridays or Mondays. Sometimes I'll change it up and just do a topic Today we, you know, this week we've talked a lot about gardening and stuff like that, so I thought it'd be good to cap the week off with an action show on gardening and permaculture. So today's show is going to be 10 permaculture projects for modern survivalists. These are things that you can actually do. Uh, None of them are going to require a great deal of research or a great deal of reading. Um, Most of them, if you just get to it, you'll figure it out as you go along, and it'll do a lot to help you build up that self-sufficiency Uh, self-reliance, and more importantly, cut and dry, the ability to feed yourself in a sustainable way. So that's going to be the main topic of today's show. Before we do that, though, um, I do have to knock out our housekeeping as usual. Uh, First up are our sponsors. Make sure you take care of them. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. If you're looking for cool stuff, tactical stuff, if you're looking for innovative stuff, if you're looking for stuff like Maxpedition and and, and cool knives and other things like that, the guy stuff, right, Urgh. check out Sawtooth Tactical. They have really cool stuff, and you get personal attention from the owner, which is something I really love about that company. I have a tendency for survival podcast folks to get... Mentioned a show to throw in a little bit of uh, extra goodies once in a while just to take care of us. That shows that they really are concerned with helping support this audience and being loyal to us as a sponsor. So try to be loyal to them. Try to throw them in order, you know, once in a while. I think there's definitely things that we're buying every day that we could buy from Sawtooth. Uh, Next up is Safe Castle. Safe Castle is an amazing company with an amazing assortment of items. I'm actually really honored that I serve on their advisory board. I want to tell you quickly a story about Safe Castle today. Um, I ordered a vacuum sealer from Safe Castle, and it did not work well. It did not work well at all. It did not work as advertised. I sent e- an email to Vic and said, Vic, i got to tell you this thing doesn't work, and as your advisory council member, I'm telling you, take it off your website. He said, well, I've never had a complaint about one before. Let me send you another one. So he sent me another one, and I tried it, and it didn't work either. He immediately issued me a gift certificate to refund the cost of purchased. He immediately removed it from his website. He immediately replaced it with something else in the price point, which is basically the Food Saver Plus, which is a good vacuum sealer. And uh, I ordered that for a, there was like a dollar difference. so I have like a $1 gift certificate. What I want you to understand about that is he didn't just listen to me because I'm an advisory council member. He listened to me because I was his customer. And he realized that product didn't live up to his reputation, and he replaced it. That's the kind of person I'm looking for in a sponsor. And I like the fact that people that deal with SafeCastle talk to the owner. People that deal with Sawtooth Tactical talk to the owner. Because the owner can never pass the buck. That's why I like these small companies. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send something out to you guys. And this is refers to every sponsor we have today, folks. And I don't you know push this stuff real hard because I don't think I really need to. I don't want to make the show too commercial, but I want to put it to you this way. I've had people email me go, well, I can find this item for $2.50 less on Amazon. From who? Right? That's my question. Who are you buying from? Do you know this person? And look, I'm all for buying items secondhand from eBay and things like that. I do it all the time. I just bought a really awesome uh, uh, Lawrence, uh GPS uh, H2O high resolution full color uh, GPS unit for half price on eBay because it was used. I'm, I'm cool with that. But when it comes to buying something, you're going to buy something new. If you're going to pay 1% or 2% more to deal with a company that you know, run by people that you know, that's what makes small business in America work, folks. So that's not just about our sponsors today. That's about all our sponsors all the time. And it's about the small company near you. The Starbucks is in one place, and Joe's Cup of Joe is in another. Go see Joe. He's probably there. He'll pour you a cup of coffee. It'll be just as good. He might even use Starbucks as a supplier, but he's an individual business owner. If we want this country to come back, we have to deal with small business people. Because if we want to say we support small business, but we always deal with big business, there's a lack of congruency there. Moving on, get involved with us online. Our forum is growing rapidly. Hundreds of new members a month. It's amazing uh, how how well this forum's taken off and growing. And while you're there, occasionally thank a moderator. Those guys work their asses off for you. They really do. And I know sometimes you can butt heads with them, but they're only enforcing the rules. We run our our forum as a constitutional republic, which means everybody has to follow the rules, even me. And they're willing to make me follow the rules, too, even though it's my forum. And that's the way we run it. We have a terms of service. That's our constitution. Get involved with our forum. I think you'll find that because we run it that way, we have a really well-run and very friendly environment on our forum. Last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade. If you do, you get exclusive content available only to members. I just mentioned Safecast. You get a lifetime membership to their discount club. That normally sells for $29. Um, So that pays, what, you know, two-thirds of your membership for the first year just in that membership alone, along with discounts from, like, 16 other vendors. Uh, also, I want to remind you, I don't say this as much as I should, not only will I take $50 a year U.S. cash, right? $5 a month to cash via PayPal, uh, a check or money order sent uh, with a form that's there for download for an annual membership, I will also on annual memberships accept American Open Currency Standard Silver. Basically, you can buy a one-year membership for an ounce of silver as long as it is American Open Currency Standard Silver. Right with a 50 value on it. If you want to pay me a non-American open currency standard silver, I'll take two ounces of silver. So it'll, in theory, cost you almost twice as much because I'm supporting the open currency standard. With that, we're, and if you want to know more on that, um, I'll put some links in to today's show. I probably need to amend the form to say that and put a policy on uh, the, the member's brigade. I'll do that soon so the people that want to pay with silver know exactly what they're dealing with. But basically, it's two ounces of any silver, or one ounce of American Open Currency Silver at 50 trade value. There you go. All right, moving on. Let's start talking about today's main topic. Let's start off with why I wanted to talk about this. Uh, as I was putting together questions for my Listener question show next Monday, I got a question from somebody and it says, I find myself basically digging too much into details and reading and online wasting time instead of practically preparing. What are some things that I can do? And I may answer that question Monday. I didn't push it out of the queue, but it got me thinking about what I was going to do today, and it made me shift gears from doing a call-in show today to, uh, to doing a show like this that's more practical on what to do, because I think there's a big trap like that. I think a lot of us get into, you know, preparedness is cool. It really is, and it does change our lives, and it makes them better, but as we start to reach out into the community, it can be a double-edged sword. There's so much out there. There's so many cool things out there. There's so many ideas. There's so many great forums. There's so much on YouTube. There's so much on Facebook, you know. There's all that stuff. And there's nothing wrong with it. But if that becomes what we see as our preparedness planning, we're we're hurting. Because what we end up with is a tremendous amount of knowledge, very little practical application. And if a disaster hits, we're decidedly unprepared. We're actually maybe in worse shape than the masses. Because we know how bad it is, but we haven't done anything to fill it in, so on top of the fear, we also have a deep-seated feeling of regret, and we also have a feeling of, man, I should have known better than to do this, and now I'm really in trouble. So I think that we all need to be as active as possible, and since I was already in a gardening theme this week, I thought, well, let's talk about things we can actually do, and let's make most of them kind of fun, let's make all of them relatively low cost, and uh Let's try to make it all things that people can do. Now, I'm not saying you can run out this weekend and do all ten of these projects. And I'm going to tell you right now, you really shouldn't. But what I will tell you is that unless you live in an apartment, for apartment you know, dwellers, you're going to have to figure out what you can modify to do. Uh, with uh, back, you know, like uh, porch gardening and patio gardening and things like that or or getting involved in a community-supported agriculture or getting involved with, you know, like your local gardening club or something like that. Uh, But if you have property, and I mean a tiny posted stamp, typical one-tenth of an acre suburban lot, every single thing that I'm going to give you, if you put it on, like, your agenda for 2010 – by the time you're wrapping Christmas presents, there's not a single thing here that can't get done. And I bet you if you did them all, there's no reason your total financial investment can't be under $500, if not under $100, if not totally free if you went with salvaged materials. But I guarantee you, you can do it if you want to for very little money and really not that much work, just a little bit over time. So what I'm trying to do in advance, before I even start giving you the projects, is take away any excuses that we have to remain stationary at our desks, behind our computers, in front of our TV sets, reading yet another book. I want action. So these are all action items. The first one is real simple, and it's not going to cost you any money, as long as, again, you have a piece of property you're working with. You have something that writes or draws in your home, a pen, a marker, a chalkboard, and a piece of chalk. I don't care why I would not use a chalkboard and a piece of chalk, honestly because it's not permanent then. But if you have a notebook and a pen, you can do this one for free. I want you to draw a zone and an energy map of your property. I think you should do that this weekend. I don't care if you do any of this other stuff in the next 30 days. I think you should do that one this weekend because it's going to change everything. So what is a zone and an energy map? Let's start out with a basic map of your property. All you got to do, and you don't have to be a cartographer, you know, professional map uh, drawer, but paste your property the whole perimeter of your property, front yard, backyard, everything. Get a basic understanding of its shape. A lot of you, it's rectangle. Me, I've got this weird, you know, backyard cul-de-sac shape, which gives me a big yard, which is nice, but it's a weird shape. But pace it. You don't have to even worry about being exact with your footage. But I want you to pace it so you come up with some set of scale. So you say that ten steps is is one inch on a ruler or something like that. Whatever works and fits your property onto a standard size piece of paper, but do it to somewhat scale. It's not going to be perfect, but if it's totally out of scale, it's going to mess everything up for you. So then do things like when you have a, a shed or a pool or a deck, paste them as well. Draw them in somewhat to scale. Using a ruler and a pencil is probably the best way to go here. This is a 20 minute project. Don't try to make it perfect. Also put in things like very large trees, um, and, and your, you know, your existing raised beds and anything on your property that affects the property whatsoever. Now you have a basic property map. Now we're going to come up with a zone map. All right. So a zone map. The best thing you could do is if you have access to a copy machine, take your map that you just drew, uh, and it'll be easier this way, and just photocopy it a few times. Because that way you can kind of play around with it and change it. It's not that big a deal. It's probably easier than using overlayments. So make a few photocopies of that. Go buy Kinko's and spend $0.35 for three copies if you don't have a copy machine at work you can use. So now we're going to put the zones on. Now what are the zones? Well, with permaculture, it works through a, a particular section known as five zones. Now... A lot of people think that if you don't have five zones, you don't have permaculture. Well, you don't need five. Most people in suburban environments generally break their property into only three zones. So here's the first three. Zone one is the area closest to your house. When you walk out, let's start out. Actually, zone zero is where you are when you're inside your house. Inside is zone zero. We won't talk about that much today at all, though. As soon as you walk through the front or back door, you're in zone one. And how big and how far out zone one goes is completely up to you. But zone one should be where your vegetable garden is, your main vegetable kitchen garden, your herb garden, small shrubs, bushes, trees and vines that are you know that need attention. Zone one is where you have irrigation and when you plant things they're fully mulched and they're constantly you know taken care of. and they're the things that you use the most. As you step out a little bit further into zone two, if we were on a farm, this would be a different, kind of arrangement because you'd have things that maybe you don't have uh on a farm, you know, you have additional things. So I'm talking about a backyard way of looking at a three-zone system here. So as we go into zone two, we're looking more at our permanent plantings, our dwarf trees, that once they're established, they don't need a lot. A lot of the plantings out there that we don't really water heavily, maybe we man- manually water them once a week or once every other week in dry times of the year, but pretty much they're sort of left to themselves. It might be mulched, but it's not, you know, intensively mulched. And then zone three is our furthest out, which would be along your back fence and your side fences, maybe that little dark spot in the corner of the yard behind a shed. That zone. But you, These are fluid. You can move them around. They don't have to be proportional, right? You can have a big piece that kind of jogs in like a peninsula into zone two that's considered a zone three area. But you have to think about your pathways, how you walk through your backyard. What are the main places that you go? And what you want is everything in Zone 3 is the stuff that requires your least attention. Zone 2 is the moderate attention. And Zone 1 is the most attention. There's a Zone 4 and a Zone 5 on larger operations. And Zone 5 is wilderness. You don't touch it. Zone 4 is kind of a managed food forest. You very do very little to it. So we can have these in a suburban environment, but not really to the scale that things are. But we can have a little patch back in the corner where we never touch it. We let whatever grows grow. That could be our little piece of local wilderness. We could do that if we want to, but at least three zones. So draw the zone map. Now you need to draw an energy map. The energy map is very, is very, very important because it will get you thinking. On your energy map, what you need to draw is where your shadows fall. So your main shade, where is it in the morning, where is it at mid-afternoon, and where is it at late day. So you need to know where those shadows are so you know your solar exposure by looking at a map, not staying in your backyard and wondering and pondering on it. You also need to think about where does your sun, what is the path of your sun in the summer, and what is the path of your sun in the winter. It's entirely different, and the shadows that they cast are entirely different. What's your directions, northeast, south, and west? It's important because your solar exposure is going to be heaviest uh, you know, to, to one side of the property and nonexistent on the other. Depending on which hemisphere you're in, because I know we have got international listeners that are, you know, on the other side of the equator here. Uh, but get all of those things into there. The other thing you want to look at is which direction do your prevailing winds come from in the summer, in the winter. Just get the knowledge down. I'm not telling you to do anything with it yet, except understand it. And that way, you'll be able to start thinking long term. Which energies do I want to invite in, and which energies do I want to keep out? This is important to understand. I mean, it's absolutely imperative that we understand that type of concept. Um, And what I mean by that is, if I have a place that I plan on planting herbs in a a kitchen garden, where I'm going to have my peppers and beans and all that good stuff, and it gets good sunlight, I want to invite that sunlight in. So what I don't want to do is ever plant something that's eventually going to grow up and obstruct that sunlight. Because then I've blocked out energy that's positive. Conversely, I might have an area that gets just beaten on by the sun all day long. And I might want to plant something that gives it some midday shade so that it gets morning sun and afternoon sun, but not the midday sun when it's directly overhead and really beating down on it. So that I can plant plants that can't tolerate the sun being there all day long. So now I want to block energy. I might have a prevailing wind in the summer that comes from one direction that helps cool my backyard, and I might want to leave that area completely open. Well, often my prevailing winter winds will be completely different, and I may want to plant some things like clumping bamboo to block that cold energy in the uh, in the winter time, so that it doesn't come in and and, and over chill my backyard or my home. I may want to plant um, something that shades my house in the summer, but if I do that, I probably want to plant something deciduous where the leaves will fall off in the winter and let the sun in when it's cold out and block the sun out when it's hot out. So, understand the energy flows. That's all I'm saying. Get that on your map. That's a pretty easy one. The next one is really cool. It doesn't have to cost a lot because you can start all your plants from seeds and toward the end, I'm going to tell you how you can get seeds by swapping and bartering and exchanging for next to nothing. Um, And... You really need dirt, which we can generally find pretty decent dirt and some compost and things like that just by making our own or bartering for it or, you know, even buying a little bit of it. The big thing that you're going to need that you may have to buy if you don't have them in your area is to do an herb spiral in a way I consider proper. You need rocks. And what you do with an herb spiral is exactly what it says. It's a spiral, but it's built up, not just, not just in a spiral. So we start out low facing the sun, uh, the primary way that the sun flows on our property. And we come back and we spiral around. And as we spiral, we come up. And we spiral around about one and a half turns on the spiral. So, And you're looking at something probably about four foot in diameter is where you're going to start this thing. And you use rocks on the edges and you build it up with soil that you're going to plant in. And in between, it's basically like it looks like a little rock road. Like if you're a little kid and you're building a little mountain and then the cars are going to drive around the side of the mountain, except there's no site. It's completely open. You look down from the top, everything you can see that's not bordered in the rocks and stones is plantable. And you plant all your culinary herbs and maybe some medicinal herbs in there. So things like uh, trailing rosemary, thyme, uh, parsley, you name it. Whatever herbs you really like to cook with. Uh, basil. Uh, sage, uh, all of the all of your culinary herbs you plant in that spiral. That doesn't mean you don't plant them elsewhere as well. I, I would plant herbs all through your property, but you really intensely manage that herb spiral. Now, why do we build it in a spiral and why do we build it rising up? And I'll put a link where you can get a better visual image of what an herb spiral is, what it looks like, and how to build it. Uh, on today's show notes, so don't worry if you're not really visualizing what I'm talking about yet. Look at a picture it's worth a thousand of my words, right? But why do we do it that way? This is the more important thing. Well, herbs generally are heat loving plants. they lo- they love heat and they they will a lot of them uh, will be perennial for you and stay through the winter. I have on my property oregano, sage, rosemary, uh, that have been in the ground growing and reproducing for me for four years now that I've never had to replant, and that's just in one little area. Uh, and a big part of why is it's kind of in a raised bed on the side of the house, and the raised bed is built out of those blocks that interlock together, so they suck heat up. And that protects the root system, even when most of the green of the oregano and sage die off, and the root system's still hardy and brings it back. Of course, the rosemary doesn't really even care. It, it comes back. I've also been able to get thyme to come back, but after a couple of years, I lost it. So with a with an herb spiral that's more intensely managed to pull that heat in, you get a more effective way of trying to pull herbs longer through your season, if not turn them into perennials. The other thing, though, is they all need sunlight. Well, as you build up, you create a, a stacking system. So you're actually able to plant a lot more herbs in a much smaller area than you normally would. So check out doing an herb spiral. I think it's a good idea. It's a, it's a mainstay of permaculture. And it's kind of like, you know, Mollison says, it's kind of become almost a uh, cliché. Because everybody that puts in permaculture, one of the first things they do is put it in an herb spiral. But there's a reason. The next one is build a rain garden. And uh, I'll post a picture if I can today. It might take me later in the day uh, before I get the picture up of of, uh, Bill Wilson from Midwest Permaculture's rain garden. What a rain garden is, is we take water flows. And instead of like... I've talked a lot about swaling, which is a ditch on contour where we stop the water, and that's really a project for a larger piece of property. A rain garden kind of scales down the concept of swaling to make it more manageable for the suburbanite. So with a rain garden, what we do is we pick out an area where we want to grow plants, and we hopefully it's just a relatively level area, but hopefully it's just a little bit lower than some other areas. And in that, we design out and lay out the way we want our garden to work. And in our garden, we're going to plant plants that can do with a little bit more dry and plants that need quite a bit of moisture. And we're going to go and and draw out where we want our more moisture-loving plants. We're basically going to build a hole or a series of interlocking holes and canals where we actually take the dirt out of the ground. Some of the dirt we'll probably have to remove or put somewhere else. Some of the dirt will actually build up a little bit higher around the holes. Into the holes and filling them up to ground level, we're going to fill them with pure organic matter. Compost, partially broken down compost, leaves, you get the idea. And then we're going to mulch the heck out of that. On the little bit of earth that we've piled up, we're going to mulch mulch the heck out of that. Into our raised parts of that garden, we're going to plant plants that don't need quite as much moisture. And in the center parts, where it's all compost and organic matter, and it's basically loosely packed Uh, uh, soft matter in a hole we're going to plant our more moisture loving plants and we're going to direct rain flow into that area and at some point we're going to have to allow that rain flow to come back out the other side and from that water that keeps going through there, we'll decide whatever it is we really want to do with it. What Bill did which was brilliant, he took all the dirt he pulled out of his holes and he made this berm all the way down his property line from the front yard through the backyard and it looked horrible when he did it. It looked like this pile of dirt like, man, your neighbor must hate that. He showed me a picture of it six months later. And all he did was plant all kinds of perennial herbs and bushes and blackberries and blueberries and everything right into that berm. And when the water came out at the end and hit that berm, it just flowed all the way along the berm down the back grade of the property. And, and totally irrigated that berm every time that it rained. He had a lot of the water that came off the front side of his roof of his house, going into this rain garden in his front yard, and then following the land contour to the back. So you can build a rain garden. It can be that extensive, or it can just be a little area, just a little bit of a low spot that you can relatively level out and do this with, but consider building one. Uh, I think Bill said he had some insane number, like 1,200 different varieties of plants in his front yard just with this rain guard. I don't remember. If it's 600, it's insane to think about that because it's a small, it's a typical little front yard folks it's not a big area that he has that he's working with so consider building a rain garden learn more about those uh the next one is you know sticking with rain install some type of rain harvesting system this year and this can be simple i mean if you have a shed or or a part of your house that's kind of unseen and you just get a couple uh, good heavy duty garbage cans uh, and mount a drain uh, hole into the bottom of them that can be turned on and off with a little bit of plumber's tape and some PVC pipe and a valve and set them there so that they'll collect water. At least it's water harvesting on some level. You get a couple uh, 50-gallon trash cans to do that. you got got 100 gallons of water. So that's a tremendous amount of water, but it's a start. Now, if you want to do your own and build them out of garbage cans, one of the things you have to be mindful of is creating a mosquito be- breeding ground and getting a lot of crap into your uh, into your trash can. But what you do is you direct your water flow to the lid of the trash can one way or another, whether it's with downspouts or with chains or what have you. Cut a hole in your lid, affix um, hardware cloth screen uh, to that hole, and let the water run through the screen. I've even seen people do it where they basically take a rounded garbage can lid, flip it around, and set it on there upside down, and then put their holes to allow so the water collects, pools, and drains down into the barrel. So there's a lot of ways you could do it and keep the uh, the mosquitoes out. You don't want to rec- create a mosquito, mosquito breeding ground. But why do I think it's so important that we collect rainwater? It is more than just having some extra water around if we lose the water system. I can tell you an easy way to do that, <clears throat> that it doesn't involve rainwater at all. I got this from James Talmadge Stevens. Go get some uh, water containers, especially the ones that are designed for drinkable water. Maybe get 55 or 75-gallon drums like three or four, or as many as you want up in a row, interconnect them with piping, uh, run your hose, your garden hose input, uh, into one end, and then attach your garden hose on an output of the other end, on the high side. Turn the water on. Wait till water comes out the end of the hose. It'll have to wait till it fills up all your barrels, and eventually the water will come out of that hose, and you can use it like you would always use it. Every time you turn the hose on, you're pushing water through your barrel system, And you end up with rotated fresh water all the time. That water, of course, if it's a a container that's designed to store drinkable water, stores drinkable, usable water for emergencies. So if it's that easy, why put in a rain harvesting system? And I'll tell you, to me, it's because I can water my plants and water my plants and water my plants and water my plants, and they grow. But when it rains... The vigor that the plants get from rainwater is different than the vigor they get from well water or, or uh, city water. It, it's very clear the difference that you see how how bright and green and, and active everything becomes after a good rain. To me, rainwater is the gold standard for irrigation. So if you even use it occasionally, 100 gallons is not a lot of irrigation, but maybe it's, you use it for your container garden. You know, uh, But it's just a beginning. Eventually, you want to harvest as much rainwater as you possibly can. Uh, but at least get started with some level of rainwater harvesting. They make pretty cool little rain harvesting barrels. I see it at Home Depot and Lowe's now. I think they're a little bit overpriced, but they do look good. And they're functional. All you have to do is put them in place and they start working. Uh, they even make a pretty cool thing that goes into a downspout uh, that acts as an overflow guard. So as soon as it starts overflowing, it just goes back through your downspout. And you'd be amazed how much water you can collect off the average rooftop uh, with just even a you know a half inch rainstorm. It's amazing how much there is. Some of you in dry areas where you go through water rationing and things like that could do yourself a real favor to put in the ability to harvest maybe five or six hundred gallons of water or more. Here's what Bill Wilson did. I thought this was cool, too. He built a water tower in his backyard, basically just four-by-fours with a deck. He built it as close to the top of the roof as he could and still let the water flow into it. He went to, like, a tractor supplier or some store like that and bought a 250-gallon water tank, and they're pretty inexpensive, and they're not that heavy when they're empty, so it was easy to get it up on top of that deck. He ran his his, uh, downspout into that tank. And that means since it's up that high, he's got a bunch of pressure. Now you say, well, what does this look like? It looks like a great big structure with a big water tank on the top of it. But what he's doing now is planting all types of climbers around it that'll climb up, shade the water, keep it cool, and eventually it won't look like a water tower. It'll look like an arbor or a trellis with a bunch of really cool plants that are edible growing on it. So even though it kind of maybe is a little bit of an eyesore, Right? That's 250 gallons of water. Now, that's a uh, substantial amount of irrigation, especially if you live in a climate where it does rain often and you're only watering in between the rain. Uh, you can do quite a bit with 250 gallons. And if you could do 250, obviously, you could maybe eventually do 500 by simply duplicating that. 500 gallons for suburban lots. Uh, it is a pretty substantial amount of water. So I want you to think about doing some sort of rain harvesting. It's up to you exactly what, but I think it'll, it'll take you a long way toward greater self-sufficiency, and I think it's a project that we can all get done this year. Uh, next is create bird habitat. I, I think it's one of the, the best things that you can do, and there's some different schools of thought on this. I've read a lot of stuff by permaculturists that say, I don't install bird feeders at all. Because I want to just plant things that will attract birds. And I want to attract birds that are more insect eaters than seed eaters. I, that's all good and well. But I'll tell you what, I keep feeders out here. I always talk about the squirrel. There's a forum thread now that they wanted to name my squirrel. Uh, and it, it, people came up with a lot of different ones. One was stew. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, the reality is I have about nine individual squirrels that I can look and go, I know that squirrel, believe it or not, uh, that come to the feeders. It used to be ten, but Max, the survival podcast German shepherd dog, is apparently a pretty fast dog, and he was able to, uh, last week, run one of them down in the open field and uh, killed it. That's a fast dog. Uh, I guess he can survive where others can as well. Anyway, uh, those feeders bring a lot of wildlife here. They bring house finches, uh, they bring cardinals, they bring uh, blue jays, they bring doves. And When you bring a lot of birds in, it gives other birds confidence that it's a safe area. It's kind of a living decoy situation. So I'm big on the feeders because I also find that the feeders do bring in birds that are quite um, good at taking out insects. People look at a blue jay, and blue jays get kind of a bad rap from some people. I like blue jays. I think they're beautiful birds. They are a bit noisy, and and they can be a a real problem when you're out deer hunting, because if they see you in a tree, they start screaming at you, and if they do that, you're not going to see a deer. But in a backyard, uh, they serve a lot of roles. Blue jays are very much an omnivorous bird, meaning they eat seeds and they eat meat. And with meat, they eat things like insects and bugs. So if you're drawing blue jays, then you're drawing an insect eaters. So I, I believe that feeders are a great way to kind of get things started and primed. I'm also a big believer you need to plant plants, bushes, trees, and shrubs to provide cover so birds feel safe, provide them places to perch, provide a bird back, a place for them to get water, uh, and provide as much good bird habitat, including nesting boxes uh, for specific species you'd like to attract uh, as well. And the more you can bring in, the better. I'm really working hard to bring more robins in. We get some, I never got, I've never seen as many robins here as we used to get in Pennsylvania in the summertime. In the Pennsylvania summertime, there were robins everywhere. And I had very little problem with fruit flies. And I always wondered why they're so much worse down here. I think that robins are the thing. You know, People let chickens go under their fruit trees and they clean up all the little uh, fruit fly maggots peck them out, eat them, and they eat the rotting fruit as well, and that helps control the fruit fly population. Well, I thought about it. A robin will eat a fruit fly maggot, and I have, I see my robin or two underneath my peach tree all the time. I just don't think there's enough robin activity to control uh, the fruit fly problems that we have here. But if I can bring more robins in, I think I can create the same thing. So it's not just about attracting birds for the sake of attracting birds. Think about what birds you want to attract. If you live up north... Let me tell you, you want Jenny Wren's. Jenny Wren's are the only bird I've ever seen that will kill Japanese beetles. And we used to have little Jenny Wren houses all over the place at our place in Pennsylvania. And we had this driveway that was all gravel. And you'd see the little Jenny Wren go flying off toward one of the rose bushes or one of the other plants or grapevines. And then you'd see her or him go flying over to the, uh, to the, uh, what do I say, the driveway. And what's he doing there, you know? And you'd see him, it looks like he's throwing something. Well, what the smart little birds would do is those Japanese beetles have those hard wings, and so they can't get through those wings. So they'd just grab one. They'd take them down there where all those rocks and gravel were, and they'd just keep smashing them on the uh, driveway until the wings would come off. And then they'd grab the body and fly to the nest and chew it up and eat it or feed it to their babies. And they'd do it all day long. You'd go down there, and there's this little pile. Of Japanese wing beetles down there. And those are a, a terrible insect pest to deal with. Fortunately, we don't have them in Texas, but I remember dealing with those things. So we just attracted as many Jenny Reds as we could, and we had a lot less Japanese beetle problems. So look at what are the bird species available in your area, what are the pests that you have, and what do you want to attract. And, uh, provide habitat that's specific to their needs. A lot of birds, you can provide bird nesting houses that are specific to a certain size, shape, door opening, and it really will ward off a lot of other birds from using them and bring in a specific uh, type. A perfect example are the great big purple martin houses, the purple martin swallows. If you can bring those in, you can really do a lot to control insect populations, especially mosquitoes. Those things are like They're like daytime bats the way they fly around and take out bugs. So create bird habitat, housing, cover, concealment, food sources, feeders, natural growing food sources. But the more birds, and I know people that grow fruit, especially like cherries and other berries, will say, Birds are the bane of my existence because they, they steal my berries and my cherries. But, you know, netting helps that. And if you grow enough, it doesn't really hurt to lose a little bit to the birds. But there's a lot of birds that are very, very beneficial. And your insect eaters uh, are generally very beneficial. And your seed eaters are generally not very damaging uh, your doves and things like that. Uh, but they have, you know, an aesthetic uh, value. They also have the ability to become protein sources. On any given day, I'll look out in my yard where I throw sunflower seeds for the doves and there could be, right now there's two doves and one of the fox squirrels, one of the smaller ones, and uh, they're just out there eating. But sometimes I look out there and there's 50 to 100 doves just floating around my backyard. That's an emergency protein source, folks. We could put a trap out there. We don't even have to pellet gun them, and we could catch, you know, a couple dozen doves a day for a long time, I think, before they started to wise up to it. So there is a value of attracting wildlife even in suburbia. The next one is building a worm bin. I think building a worm bin is a little project everybody should put together. Uh, you can do it with those little uh, totes, Tupperware totes, that are about, what, seven, eight bucks a piece. You need two of them and a few other materials. And then basically you throw garbage and worms in there. And the worms destroy the garbage and turn it into fertilizer, two types. Uh, you create a drain system and a harvesting system for that drain. And you get basically what's like a worm tea, which is kind of a gross-looking brown liquid, but God, your plants love it and it's completely safe, it doesn't burn, it won't harm, you can throw it straight on the plants, uh, and they'll just eat it up, love it, and they'll grow wonderfully for you, and then they create castings, which of course is worm manure, which is great to add as uh, you know, a specific composting treatment. I won't say a lot about you know growing, putting together a worm bin, because it's really not very difficult. Uh, I will put a link in today's show notes to some plans on how to put together a worm bin, and uh, I'll tell you what, those Rubbermaid totes may not look that great, But you know what? With just a few old fence slats or whatever, if you locate it in a shady area where your worms aren't going to get too hot, put and keep it outside, you could build a nice little wooden uh, encasement for your worms that would actually look pretty good. And maybe you even plant a little planter box on top, Uh, you know, uh, where you can still get in and access to your worms. Plant something like English ivy in a shaded area, that'll help keep a a nice moist environment. Now you're using plants uh, to do work for you and uh, help keep moisture and help keep cooling so your worms don't overheat. And, of course, it works the opposite way in the winter and helps retain heat so your worms don't, you know, freeze out. Uh, there's a lot you can do with things like that. And then you just start taking a lot of the garbage that you're normally throwing away or composting and feeding into the worms. And they'll work 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for you. They'll just work and work and work, because to them they're not working, they're living. But they're turning out some of the best quality fertilizer you could ever get your hands on. And it's not cheap. Go out and look what a what a gallon of worm castings costs. And, and if you build this little project for under 20 bucks, Even if you use some old wood, wood or something to build it and make it look kind of more aesthetically pleasing, right, you have an endless supply of the stuff in return for your garbage. Now, certain things you're not supposed to feed to worms, dairy, meat, citrus, onion. Those are the big ones. None of that stuff goes in there. But pretty much anything that you would eat if it wasn't old or being thrown out, they'll be happy to have a go at for you and turn it into high-quality uh, Uh, fertilizer. The next one is another one that I think doesn't really have to cost a lot of money, doesn't have to cost you anything and that's keep what I call a wildlife journal of backyard activity and doing it online I think is a good way, online or even in a word document or whatever, but do it with pictures take pictures of stuff, now look, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm sitting here with a wildlife journal going, 8am Stu and two of his buddies show up to eat seeds, four doves show up, I'm talking about kind of just observing the general activity of the day. Uh, Birds and squirrels showed up in mass at the feeder today at 8 a.m. and 6 o'clock. That might be the only thing that would even mention that, because there's activity there all the time. But it's more about looking and just seeing what new things you can find in your backyard. When do you see your first mason bees? When do you see your first bumblebees? When do you see your first wasps? This is really looking more at the insect activity and the unusual bird and reptile and amphibian activity. What, you know, do you see any frogs? What kind of frogs are they? The big thing is just like, okay, fine, there's doves in my backyard. I'm looking at them right now. There's a morning dove and a white wing. Big whoop. I already know those when I see them. I'm talking about when I look and I see and I go, what kind of bird is that? And I'm on my iPhone with my bird identification app and going, hey, we just had you know, uh, a, a thrush or, or a, you know, something else that I wasn't familiar with show up here. And then knowing the species, and, how, and then when it comes back, simply you don't have to write it came back, right? It's simply knowing what it is so that, the, you know, when you start seeing it, you realize it's here, it's here often, it's here infrequently, it's here at certain times a year or certain times a day because you're starting down the process of one of the most important permaculture principles, which is observe and interact, to actually become part of your environment versus just a consumer of the environment. And that helps you make better decisions overall. It's something you'll have to experience to really understand the value of it. With insects, it's hugely valuable, though, because you'll start to learn predator and pest insects. You'll see an insect. You have no idea what it is. You take a picture of it. You go online. You describe it. It might take you 20 minutes to even find out what the hell it is. You find out what it is. You find out it's a predator. That's a beneficial insect. Then you go back out and you say, well, how many of them can I find? Where are they? What habitat do they hang out in? Oh, these things are hanging out, you know, in my, uh, in my basil plants. Well, if they prey on an insect that's a problem in my area, I know to plant more basil, and that's just an example. If I look at an insect and it's a pest insect, what is it a pest of? Now I know I need to take some protective action for the plants that it's a pest of. If I, if I see a potato beetle and I'm growing potatoes, then I know that I need to protect my potatoes from potato beetle, and I need to find out what predators eat potato beetles, and near my potatoes, I need to plant habitat that attracts those predators. And you can overthink this, and you can go too far. I'm just talking about a a very cursory, uh, mile-high view of what shows up on your property, where it hangs out, what it does, and getting to a point where, unless it's something brand new that's not almost never there, Anytime you look and see something on your property, like the beautiful cardinal that's at my feeder now, uh, hanging there looking at me, uh, halfway upside down, um, you'll know what it is. So you look at it and go, oh, that's a squash bug, right? Well, oh, that's a squash vine borer, but that's the adult. Even though it sort of looks like a wasp, that's a bad thing. I'm going to spray it with a little insecticidal scope and kill it, right? Right. Um, just to know what things are, to look and go, that's an assassin bug. He's a good guy. I'm going to leave him alone. I see where he's hanging out. I'm going to give more habitat like that to attract uh, more of these guys. You do that, and what's going to happen? And do this with weeds, too. You find a weed in your backyard, in your garden, in the grass, in the lawn, front yard, backyard, growing between the sidewalk. I don't care what it is. Unless you look down and go, oh, dandelion. Don't write that down. Right, go to a dandelion click, right? You know what your dandelion, maybe once, right? I guess if you just wanna get it started and feel good because you were able to identify something. But you know what a dandelion is, right? So you don't really need to know that. You might wanna note when they start to bloom and when they stop blooming in your backyard. That's gonna have a big draw for uh, things like honeybees. Early honeybees do a lot of their pollinating with uh, and, and initial gathering with dandelion because one of the early flowers. So that'll tell you when that activity is going to pick up. If you like to make dandelion wine out of dandelion blossoms, then you will know, at least next year, when your window to do that is. So as you're prioritizing your projects, you don't wait till the dandelions really stop blooming for the year. So things like that with a common species are a good idea, timings. But when you look at a leaf and you're going to yank it out because you know that's not grass, and it's, you don't know what it is, though go find out. It might be edible. It might be usable. It might be useful. It might have value, and it might legitimately be a weed. Find out what it is. And even if it's a weed, find out what it is. What, why does it, you know, how, what are some methods of natural control of that weed? To me, natural control is planting more things there that you want so that it gets choked out. But find out what it is. If you have something that just pops up on your property, and it turns out to be edible, well, imagine what would happen if you gave it a little bit of encouragement. Now you have a new edible. So now you're taking wild edibles and encouraging them on your property and making them part of your entire system. It might not be edible for you, but maybe it's edible for wildlife. Maybe it's a good thing uh, for birds. Maybe it produces a seed head that's good for birds. And if it's in an area that you're not intensively cultivating, maybe you allow it to grow as part of your bird habitat. Doesn't that make more sense than going out and buying plants for your birds and bringing them in and planting, taking what's already naturally occurring and encouraging it. But the only way you can do that is if you identify it and understand it and know what it is. So that's what this journal's about. This is not complicated. It's simply an organized method of taking photos and identifying things so you can refer back to them when you're not sure or you forgot or when you're getting an answer from it. When you try to describe to somebody, I saw this bird or I saw this bug and it had a stripe and, you know, even a person that knows exactly what it is isn't really sure what you're talking about you get this back and forth going on but if you're able to send them a picture they're like oh that's Colorado potato beetle so it makes it easier for people to help you if you have photographs and I think it's fun it's a little bit addictive too Uh, the next one is build some mason bee habitat Uh, it's pretty late in the year most of the places selling mason bees and tubes uh, have sold them already most of them are sold out but You don't even really need to buy mason bees if they're in your area and odds are they are. Uh, You can build a pretty basic mason bee nesting house uh, with pine or fir, four by four, with holes drilled in it and a little bit of maybe like a rain shelter at an angle over the top and plant it somewhere where it gets more, set it somewhere where it gets morning sun. It can be a post in the ground. It can be a block mounted to a tree or the side of a building. Uh, but that's basically all they need is a nice little hole to nest in. And I'm not going to get into specifics of size and depth and things like that. I'll, I'll give you a great resource today for mason bees. Not just an overview article, but at the bottom it has links to so many pamphlets and PDFs. Uh, more information about mason bees than you'll ever need to know. But they need uh, wood with holes in it, and they need a place to get some mud. So if you don't have kind of a low-lying area of your property with uh With some mud, maybe you put in a little pond and put a little bit of uh, mud at the edges of it so that they can gather up some mud to plug up their holes. Now, this can get complicated, too. I read one article on the link I'll give you, and it was designed for people that really want to intensely manage mason bees and maximize the number of mason bees and minimize uh, things like cut bees and uh, wasps because you can tell by the mud plug they make. um, Mason bee plugs are always kind of like uh, rough little mud plug at the end of the hole when they're done planting their baby and the pollen in there. Uh, And then wasps and cutter bees are smooth. So what people do is they put these paper tubes into the holes. So at the end of the season, when the bee has grown to an adult, but it's in a a pupated state, it's waiting for spring to come out, they pull out all their tubes, they actually open them up, they put all the bees in a container, and they keep them like in a refrigerator. And uh, they take any of the larvae of any kind of pest insect and they destroy it. And that way you maximize the mason bee population and minimize everything else. I think that's cool. I think you can do it. But I also think if you just put up a tremendous amount of mason bee habitat, since they're wild and native and they deal with being out in the winter every year anyway, these are not an imported species. They're not an invasive species. They're native to just about the entire United States as far as as long as the climate allows for them you'll have more mason bees, because you've given them more habitat. And it's that simple, and I don't think that we need to overthink it. Now, if you're managing a fruit orchard, and you're really gonna depend on these guys, then I understand this kind of intensive management concept where you're trying to get you know 20,000 mason bees uh, inhabiting a 40 acre orchard. I I get that, I understand it. But for your backyard, a couple mason bee blocks, if you can get them starting to be used, um, that'll work. I think that if you re- you really should do this project maybe really, really soon, uh, even if you can't get bees in a can or bees in a tube from a mail order catalog, because they're starting to come out now, and they're starting to nest now, and they're starting to choose nesting areas. You might even be a little bit late in some of the southern areas of the United States, but I'll tell you what, I've seen them highly active into July and August around here, so I'm even going to set some up in the backyard here. I've already set some up in Arkansas uh, to encourage that. But, it ain't hard. If you can drill a hole straight and long in a piece of uh, pine or fir wood and stick it in the ground or nail it to a tree and you can understand which way morning sun comes from and you can provide some place with a little bit of mud and you know for them to gather, you can create mason bee habitat. They're a great option for people that would like honeybees for pollination but are allergic to bees so they're afraid to keep them. Uh, mason bees, again, I, I've never seen a mason bee... Uh, sting anybody. I've never even heard of anybody stung by a mason bee. Apparently, if like, you grab one in your hand and shake him up, he'll sting you, which I wouldn't blame him, but I've actually never seen anybody stung by a mason bee. Never heard of it. Uh, peaceful little critters. They buzz around the garden all the time. Uh, I've had them, you know, just kind of move them off a of flower because I wanted to cut something. I didn't want to bother them too much, and they just kind of buzz to the next flower. So they are cool little guys, and you'll recognize them. They're smaller than a honeybee, they're kind of black. Some of them have a little bit of an iridescent blue look to them. But they look like a small, dark-colored honeybee, uh, but definitely smaller. I would say they're about two-thirds the size of the average honeybee as the ones I see around here. And uh, they're great little guys to have in your garden. They do an awful lot of pollinating and an awful lot of work. They're peaceful creatures, uh, and they'll make your garden more productive. So encourage them and get them, uh, get them into your backyard. And again, I'll put a link to everything you need to know about building mason bee habitat in today's show notes. Uh, The next one is build a trellis or an arbor and plant edible vines. Uh, Whether it's a little bitty one that's just kind of decorative out in your garden that makes like a gate into your garden spot or a great big one over your deck, I think this this is a project that everybody should take on eventually and build yourself some vertical space to grow on. Uh, and grow anything from hops to grapes to kiwis to beans. I don't care what, but grow something on that trellis. A great project. If you have a deck on the sunny side of your house, is to build a trellis arbor all the way across your deck, and build it open so you know water can get through and air can get through, and also it's well ventilated. Uh, you know, maybe the when well, you do it with vertical uh, struts every, you know. 12 inches across the top of it. You've seen them. You know what I'm talking about with a, uh, an arbor over a deck. But then plant it with something like grapes or kiwis or even beans, something that's deciduous, something that's going to be really, really shade-providing in the summer. And it's going to love all that sunlight, create a nice cool spot where you can go underneath it in the heat of summer and relax and be shaded. And maybe reach up and grab a grape or two and eat some grapes. Uh, even some hop vines and climates that will support hops. Great thing to grow there. The aroma of hops are just beautiful if you're a home brewer. It's now free hops for your brewing. Uh, but you can, don't have to plant one thing. You can put multiple climbers up on this trellis. Get as much shade as you can. If you have a big deck, you can even put some planter boxes in the, around the center supports. Put your vines in there and let them grow up that and then, you know, fill out the entire thing. Now what's beautiful about this is you'll provide all this additional growing space. All this space that now produces something edible or useful for you, that normally was wasted space because you're growing up. The other thing you're doing is all that sun energy we talked about in the beginning that's beating on your house. In the hot part of the day is now shaded by your trellis and your arbor and your your uh, edibles. So you actually reduce your expense of heat of cooling your home in the summer. And one good arbor might cost you, let's say it's a thousand dollars in materials. That's that's probably an overreach. But let's say you put $1,000, including plants, into building an arbor. If you live in the southern United States where you run your air conditioner a lot, that will pay itself back in a year. I believe that, no doubt. Because I know how intense this heat here in Texas gets beating on this backside of the house. And we even have those uh, dark black solar screens that we put up in the summertime. It makes a huge difference. So you get a return of investment just on the, the energy costs, but you're also getting additional food. And let's face it, it looks beautiful, and it's functional because you know what? You can always find a place to go get some sun. Getting some shade, that's another story, especially in the average suburban lot that's kind of you know square and and rectangular and one little tree stuck out in the middle of it or whatever, it's gonna take a long time to grow. This brings shade in quickly, it makes it functional, it makes it useful. It's probably the most expensive project that I have today. but I think it's probably one of the heaviest ROI producers or return of investment producers that you can do. So even though there's a cost associated with it, uh, you can give that thousand bucks to yourself and increase your property value, or over the next six months, you can pay an additional cost to your utilities uh, for your your electricity to cool that house. It's up to you. All right, last one. Gonna help my boy Johnny Max out again. Here's an easy permaculture project. Barter for seeds. Go over to heirloomseedswap.com, set up your account, start bartering for seeds. Uh, get rare and unusual seeds. Get things that uh, will reproduce, and you can save the seeds year to year like we talked about yesterday. But, you know, it's it's very low cost. Basically, I, I, I set up my account yesterday. I've already done my first swap. I found a guy with these really cool little yellow baby watermelon uh, seeds up in Maryland. Turns out he's on our forum. He, he knows me well already, and I know him. Uh but, you know, I never knew he had these, these cool seeds until Johnny set the sign up. And I said, hey, look, I'll give you some of my Orach seed uh, for some of your watermelon seed. He's like, great. So I'm going to, once I'm done with the show today, mail him a little envelope full of seeds. It's going to cost me a stamp, right? Seeds are pretty lightweight, some Orach seed in it. It's a standard first-class stamp. He's going to spend a, a standard first-class stamp and throw it in the mailbox and, You know what, he's got magenta magic oroch, and I've got this little golden baby yellow watermelon at no real cost. That's permaculture, because what it's encouraging is us to be self-sufficient, build community, and in many ways think locally. Now, you'd say, well, this guy's in Maryland, you're in Texas, that's not very local. Hey, at least it's United States-based commerce. But it's outside of government. There's no tax implications here. I guess the postage, the postage stamp, they get their whatever it is now, 49 cents or I don't know I don't know what a stamp costs anymore. Um, but, so I guess they get that, but when it really comes down to it,
1: the actual value
0: of the commerce is between two individuals with common ideals. That's a local community of it itself. Johnny Max's uh, com will become its own community, just like Survival Podcast Forum has. And just like a lot of other great uh, forums out there have, there's some other great survival forums and and, uh, self-sufficiency forums. The one at Backwoods Home is pretty good. Survivalist Boards, they're they're pretty solid. Hoods Woods Forum, that's a great forum. And if you're part of a forum of Frugal Squirrels, I mean... They're all great forums. If I don't mention yours, don't think I'm sliding it. These are just some of them that I've been part of in the past. I don't really go into other people's forums a lot now because I don't want to look like I'm trying to draw their members into mine. i I try to keep a very clean profile. Because a forum owner works hard to build a forum, and they don't want you coming into their forum trying to suck their members into your own forum. That's kind of like a, a, you know, there's no law, I guess, against it, but it's kind of a, you know, netiquette thing, you know, etiquette on the internet type thing. If you're an honorable person, you don't make a a real effort to do that. And you don't even want to look like you do that. So I don't maybe post these other forums a lot, but if you're on them and you saw me there years ago, hey, I still think they're great places and they're also local communities. So beyond just swapping seeds, find things you can barter for in the communities you're already part of. If you have something and there's a, a trade or swap board on those communities, use them. And if you don't just want money, say, I'll take something and trade. And when you're trading, tell people what you're looking for. You know, when you post something, say, I'm looking to get rid of this, or I have extra of this. What I'm really looking for is this. It might make it more likely to find contact with somebody where an exchange can be made. But definitely start saving and bartering for seeds. Because if we do that, we could solve a lot of these problems that we have. And it's a great little permaculture project, and I promise you, inexpensive and easy to do. And I can't give you anything more easy than that. You can even find maybe a particularly particular variety of rare seed that's even somewhat expensive and buy it in large quantity, break it into small packages, and list it, and use that one big purchase to get a tremendous amount of other seed that other people have either saved naturally or bought in bulk as well. There's an entire little commerce system that can be set up for individuals around seed. There's some pretty cool companies out there. Sand Mountain Herbs I've just found. you got to check these guys out. They have things I couldn't find anywhere else. I was able to get Chinese wolfberry seed from Sand Mountain Herbs. I was able to get groundnut from Sand Mountain Herbs. Well, it's only a matter of time until things like that we start making them available on these seed exchanges. So definitely, and if I asked yesterday, I'm asking again one more time as a favor, and I won't do this again to you guys as a favor, but I'm asking you a favor. If you have seed, or if you want to buy seed, if you want to trade seed, if you grow anything in your backyard, and more seeds would be better for you, please go to heirloomseedswap.com. There will be a link in today's show notes. Go over there, set up an account, and start becoming an active member of that community. Let's start saving seeds. I could have set up a seed exchange at Survival Podcast myself, but I think one community can only do so much. And I like seeing people come up with creative niches and do something different. Johnny's done that, so I'm backing him. Um, But that's it. There's your ten projects. And I think you'll agree with me if you look at it, with the exception of the trellis which requires a little bit of carpentry skill and some materials and and things like that. But it could be a very small trellis. Remember, it could be a little bitty garden trellis. It doesn't have to be a great big deck trellis, but a deck trellis would be the way to go if if I were you. Um, Except for that one, they're all next to nothing in cost, and none of them require that much skill to do. You'll have to learn a few new things, but that's a good thing. But they're all things you can do, and even the trellis is something you can do. So I'm going to make another request of you today. Pick out six or seven of them, if not all ten, and decide that in 2010, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to take these things, make them my own, learn the skills behind them, adapt them to my environment, and get them done. And if you're an apartment dweller and you're thinking you can't do it, then come up with the things that you can do. Emulate them. Get involved with community-level gardening. Do whatever it takes, but start to produce some of your own food and develop that self-sufficiency, and above all, develop the knowledge. If you don't know a lot about this stuff today, you can either know a little bit more tomorrow, or you can know just as little tomorrow. It's up to you. Knowledge and action are the keys. Using them tandemly. You can have a tremendous amount of knowledge, but if you don't apply it, it's useless. You can have a tremendous amount of effort, but without knowledge, you're spitting your wills. I want you to put the two together. Educate yourself and then act on the education. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Makes Podcast, you helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get enough, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really matter it all gets banned.